pray. Our Father, I uh, was reading earlier in your word of when your son, our Lord Jesus, uh, opened up the scriptures to his disciples and they said, uh, surely our hearts burned within us. Uh, and we pray that this day, by the power of your spirit, that that might be true, uh, that you might open our hearts and minds uh, and that you might stir up our uh, love for you and uh, our desire to commit to following you and, and trusting you uh, going forward. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, in uh, 1925, Adolf Hitler uh, wrote his uh, somewhat infamous book uh, entitled Mein Kampf. It's one of those books that if you see that uh, your, your child's kind of ordered it online or something, you kind of freak out a little bit perhaps, but uh, Mein Kampf. Uh, and in that book, he coined the term The Big Lie. That's the title of today's sermon. Uh, the Big Lie being a, a sort of political technique or really a propaganda technique uh, which is basically that if you, pr- uh, if you uh, speak about a particular lie often enough or passionately enough, uh, sooner or later people will actually start to believe it's true. Uh, and in today's passage, that's what the Pharisees are doing. Uh, the Pharisees are, are engaging in this big lie propaganda technique. Uh, their aim being to derail and ultimately destroy both Jesus and his ministry. So looking in verses 22 to 24, we really see uh, the essence of their big lie, which is really the biggest lie you can possibly tell. Uh, Look there in verse 22, uh, Jesus heals another demon-possessed man. I say another demon-possessed man because uh, Jesus has already healed a demon-possessed man. If you're reading through Matthew's Gospel, uh, he did it at the end of chapter 9 in verses 32 and 33. Uh, There, if you flicked back to that passage, you would see that the demon-possessed man was mute Uh, That means he couldn't speak. Uh, And the crowds were amazed that Jesus had the power to heal him. Uh, So in chapter 9, verse 33, they said, uh, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Uh, But here now in in chapter 12, Jesus heals another demon-possessed man. And if you uh, let me read that verse in verse 22. Matthew says, "Uh, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see. So this man's in an even worse condition than the guy back in chapter 9. The guy in chapter 9, he he was uh, mute, but this man is both uh, blind and mute. He can't see or speak at all. And if you remember, when we were looking at Matthew chapters 8 to 10, the big idea in those chapters is really uh, the power of Jesus as God's king. There's a whole lot of uh, miracles that Jesus did, healing various physical disabilities. Uh, But Matthew's point in that section is that we're to read uh, all these physical disabilities through a spiritual lens. Because our deepest problem is not some physical disability, no matter what it is. Our deepest problem is always our sin. The spiritual sickness of our sin. And so here, the the biggest issue that this man has is not his physical condition, even though that is in a real mess. He's blind and mute. But his deepest problem is that he can't cry out to Jesus as his saviour because he can't speak. That's his biggest problem. His biggest problem is that he can't even see to come to Jesus as his saviour because he can't see. So praise God that some of his family or friends, someone brings this man to Jesus and Jesus heals him. So look in verse 23, the crowds are even more amazed than they were back in chapter 9. In fact, they're even starting to believe that Jesus might actually be God's king. Is Jesus really God's king? The crowds are thinking maybe he is. They say, could this... 
Now that, that title, the Son of David, uh, it takes us back to passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, verses 12 uh, to, and 13. Uh, God promises there to David uh, this. He says to David uh, from verse 12, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, uh, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promises David that one day one of his offspring, his own flesh and blood, you see, a son of David uh, will come to establish and rule over his kingdom, his kingdom that will last forever, an eternal kingdom. And for the Jews, uh, this son of David figure came to be known as the Messiah, God's anointed king, God's promised king. Uh, So in Matthew 12, uh, verse 23, the crowd see Jesus healing this blind and mute man uh, and they say, could this be the son of David? Could Jesus really be God's king? Why do they think that? What is it about healing uh, a blind and, and deaf man? That, that makes them think that Jesus could be the son of David. Well, it reminds them of another passage from the Old Testament. Write it down if you like. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, uh, which predicts that when God's king comes, this is, it, this is what it predicts, the eyes of the blind will be opened, uh, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. These predominantly Jewish crowds, they knew Isaiah 35, they'd heard it read in their synagogue, and here they see the eyes of this blind man being opened. They see his mute tongue being loosed, and they think, could this be the son of God? David, could Jesus be God's king? He's certainly got the power you'd expect of God's king. So what do the Pharisees do? In verse 24, they denounce Jesus' power. They know what the crowds are thinking. They don't like it. They say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And once again, the Pharisees already said something like this uh, back in chapter 9. In, in verse 34, they said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. But now that they kind of repeat that lie, remember big lie technique, propaganda, right? They're in this kind of smear campaign against Jesus and so they repeat the lie with even more viciousness. You can always hear the, the kind of sneer in their voice. Right? It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that, that this fellow drives out demons. You know? If you remember, if you looked at uh, last week's, uh, if you listened to last week's sermon, uh, you might remember that at this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, the hostility between him and the Pharisees is really reaching boiling point. If you've got chapter 12 open, you, might, you can look back. Pharisees have actually started to kill Jesus. Now what's Jesus done? He's poured a bit of petrol on the fire. He withdrew for a little bit, right? But now he's healed this uh, another de- saying maybe he really is God's king. The Pharisees hate that, right? The Pharisees really feel like they're starting to lose their control over the people. They're starting to lose their grip on power. So like many politicians that you might have observed in the media, they go on the offensive. They start this smear campaign against Jesus. 
Of course, it's worth noting that as much as the Pharisees hated Jesus, they don't deny that he has miraculous power. Well, they could have played that card, but they don't. But everyone here knows that Jesus is doing something supernatural. Everyone knows that. All the Pharisees can do uh, is debate the source of his power, calling to question the source of his power. Uh, to say that he's casting out demons uh, by the power of Satan, from Beelzebul, rather than by the power of God. It's kind of like everyone knows Jesus has this power. You can either believe the truth that he is empowered by God, or you can believe uh, the lie of the Pharisees. The big lie of the Pharisees are that Jesus is empowered by Satan. That's the big lie, verses 22 to 24. How does Jesus respond to that lie? Well, first, in verses 25 to 29, he teaches that their big lie is stupid. Their big lie just doesn't make sense. Look in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. Uh, How then can his kingdom stand? You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if I'm driving out demons by the power of Satan, as you guys claim, it would be like two members of the same family warring against one another. That house would not stand. It's divided. It's going to fall apart. Uh, And maybe uh, human families are kind of stupid enough to do that. But Satan's not that stupid, Jesus is saying. If he's got a grip on someone's life uh, through a demonic presence, then he's not going to have someone else who's empowered by Satan drive out that presence. He's not that stupid. We've got to give Satan some credit, Jesus is saying. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, uh, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Jesus knows that the Pharisees have disciples that also claim to be able to drive out demons. On what grounds do they say that our disciples are driving out demons by the power of God, but you're driving out demons by the power of Satan? They can't prove that. So in the process of condemning Jesus and his work, their own disciples will condemn them and their work. They will be your judges, Jesus says. So in verse 28, Jesus drives home the truth. Look there, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, which it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, see Jesus' logic through this passage. I can't be driving out demons by the power of Satan. That's just, that's just stupid, he says. Uh, So I must be driving out demons by the power of God. And if I'm driving out demons by the power of God, that means the power of God's kingdom has come. And if the power of God's kingdom has come, uh, it's come because I, as God's king, have come. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, he's saying that the people in verse 23 were right. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus really is God's king. And now before we look at verse 29, I did just want to take a step back and note, some of you might have been thinking this already, right? but I wanted to do it at this point, I wanted to note that the Bible clearly speaks about personal evil and uh, spiritual evil. Personal 
uh, powerful spiritual evil, uh, demons and Satan. The Bible speaks about that. And I want to know that because I recognise that lots of you here might be a bit sceptical about that. Perhaps you're here and you would say, yes, I'm drawn to Jesus, but I I like Jesus' teaching, I'm drawn to his miracles, there's something about his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, All of that makes me kind of drawn to Jesus. I might even want to trust and follow Jesus, but I just cannot abide this idea uh, that Satan exists. And even if I did uh, believe that Satan exists, it'd really be a kind of caricature of Satan. You know, the kind of how Satan appears with like like pointy horns and a pitchfork and like, uh, you know, like the kind of scenario. It's just a caricature of Satan. A big long tail with one of those pointy things on the end. Like, it's a caricature of Satan. But look at the Jesus you're drawn to in this passage. How does this Jesus approach Satan? He not only affirms that Satan exists, but he refuses to caricature Satan. Jesus speaks about Satan as someone who has a real kingdom. He has real power and authority. And in verse 29, he depicts Satan as a strong and powerful man. Look there in verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? Unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Jesus not only believes that Satan exists, he believes that Satan is a strong and powerful man that must be dealt with. And that's the point here. Yes, Satan exists. Yes, Satan is real. He's powerful. He has great dominion. But he's no match for Jesus. Jesus is the strongest man, the most powerful man, the the man uh, who's shown by casting out demons that he's entered into Satan's house, he's bound him up, and now he's plundering his possessions. Jesus is the strongest man, although Satan is strong. Jesus is plundering Satan's uh, possessions, his possessions being our people. You see, people who, like this blind and mute man, were once enslaved by Satan's oppressive power. That's the picture here of someone enslaved by his power, but now they're liberated by Jesus' power, living under the power of Jesus' kingdom as God's king. So first, verses 25 to 29, Jesus confronts this big lie of the Pharisees uh, really by teaching that it is stupid. It just doesn't make sense, Jesus says. But then in verses 30 to 35, uh, he teaches that their lie isn't just stupid, it's very serious. Not just stupid, but serious. Uh, It's serious first in verse 30, uh, because you can't sit on the fence with Jesus. That's why it's serious. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. God's kingdom has come in Jesus. Uh, Jesus said back in chapters 8 to 10 that the demands of his kingdom are that we would take up our cross and follow him, that we would surrender our whole life to him. If that is the demand of Jesus as God's king, then it's clear that if you're not actively for Jesus, taking up your cross, uh, you're against Jesus. You might be sympathetic to Jesus or attracted to Jesus, even amazed by Jesus. But if you're not actively following Jesus, taking up your cross and following him, uh, you're resisting his call as God's king. 
And that's why the lie of the Pharisees is so serious. Right? Because it's suggesting to the crowds that they shouldn't be too quick to make a call about Jesus. Right? Don't, don't, don't put all your eggs in the Jesus basket yet. Sit on the fence. Hedge your bets. If not, join us on this side of the fence. Right? Jesus says that lie is serious. If you're not for me, you're against me, Jesus says. Right? And that's dangerous. Refusing to believe in Jesus is very dangerous. That's verses 31 and 32. Look there in verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now, if you've fallen asleep, these words really should get your attention. I look at them again in verses 31 and 32. Jesus is speaking there about the only sin that can never be forgiven. He says, oh, I can forgive anyone of any sin, but there's one sin that can't be forgiven, one sin that has eternal consequences, one sin that will send you to hell forever. Right? That's kind of attention-grabbing, attention-grabbing words right there. You want to know what that sin is. Right? It's like Jesus is saying that uh, there's a spiritual landmine in your house and you can step wherever you like, but if you step in that spot, it's over. You want to know where that spot is. You want to know where this danger spot is. And Jesus says that spot, that sin, is the sin of blaspheming against the Spirit. It's really important to understand, what what is this blasphemy against the Spirit? And the background here is actually found in the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, uh, he predicted that after him would come someone who was much more powerful than him. You might remember this in uh, Matthew chapter 3. And the mark of their power was that that he would be able to baptise people, not just with water, uh, but in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, So if you've got uh, Matthew open, flick back to Matthew 3, uh, verses 11 and 12. Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, John says there, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then a couple of verses after that, down in verse uh, 16, if you've got it open, uh, you'll see there that when Jesus is baptised, right at the start of his ministry, God's Spirit descends on him uh, so that he's empowered throughout his ministry. Uh, So what's Jesus saying back in Matthew 12? Like Jesus is saying, he's just referred to the fact he's entered into Satan's house. Satan's the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. Satan's powerful, but Jesus is the more powerful one. He's affirming that he is the more powerful one from Matthew chapter 3. The one that John the Baptist spoke about. The one uh, who's got the power not just to baptise us with water, uh, but to baptise us with the power of God's Spirit. That's why he's able to cast out demons. Out of the Pharisees are calling into question that power. What are they doing? They're saying uh, that he's not empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Uh, he's empowered by an evil spirit. He's not empowered by God, but by Satan. Uh, they're not only rejecting the idea that Jesus is the king in God's kingdom, uh, they're saying that Jesus is a worker in Satan's kingdom. 
That, Jesus says, is the unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's calling what is holy evil. What is good evil. And it's the unforgivable sin because the only way to be forgiven of all your sins is by believing that Jesus is God's King. By believing that as God's King, he died on the cross to pay the cost for the forgiveness of all your sins. Every single one of your sins. If you believe that, uh, then every sin that you have committed or will commit will be forgiven. Nothing to fear if you believe in Jesus. Uh, But if like these Pharisees, you refuse to believe that, You label Jesus not as the good king in God's kingdom, but as the evil worker in Satan's kingdom. If you do that, then no sin you have ever committed or will commit will be forgiven. Refusing to believe in Jesus is dangerous. It's serious. It's the only unforgivable sin. And perhaps the scariest thing about this whole interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees is that it shows us that it's really possible to be to someone uh, who prides themselves on being a good person, a moral person, uh, perhaps even a religious person. It's very possible to be that kind of person and still reject Jesus. Even be hostile to Jesus. Even be so hostile to Jesus that you think that you're serving God doing the good and righteous thing by getting Jesus out of people's lives, out of this world. That you're doing a good thing just to do that. So in that sense, people who are like that are much more vulnerable to this sin. Yes, they believe that they're sinners, but they don't believe that they're so sinful that they need Jesus to die for them. So they're much more likely to reject Jesus. And Jesus says, in a spiritual sense, that is extremely dangerous. Third, verses 33 to 35, they make it clear that the Pharisees' lie is serious because it could lead us to think that the problem here is with Jesus, not with us. That's why this is serious. The Pharisees lie that the problem here is with you, Jesus. You're the evil one. That's not right. Verse 33, Jesus says, uh, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. Uh, For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you uh, who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. The problem of us refusing to believe in Jesus or perhaps even of labelling his good works as evil works, that problem that the Pharisees were creating and buying into it, perpetuating, that problem is not because of Jesus, it's because of us. That's what Jesus is saying. The problem's in the evil of our own hearts, not that Jesus is evil. In the Pharisees' case, it's very clear that they're evil, Jesus says. Because the words that they're speaking are evil. It's out of the overflow of their hearts, their evil hearts, that they speak these evil words. But in verses 36 and 37, Jesus kind of moves from the the seriousness of the Pharisee's sin uh, to the seriousness of of all of our sin. 
our own sin. Have a look there in verse 36. Uh, he says, But I tell you that, that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Now look at that verse again. On the day of judgment, everyone will have to give account for every empty word. By your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. I think those are, as someone who talks a lot... Those are, those are pretty sobering verses, aren't they? Perhaps when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, we can keep that at a bit, a bit at arm's length. Or we can say to ourselves, yeah, I'd never do something like that. Never speak about Jesus and his ministry like that. But here Jesus says that when we appear before God on the day of judgment, we'll have to give an account for every, uh, not just evil or blasphemous word, but every empty word. Every lazy word is another way of saying that. Every careless word. And Jesus says that on that day, even our careless words will be enough to condemn us. And if we're honest, that puts all of us in a really quite desperate situation before God. Well, it certainly puts me in that situation. I don't know about you, but if I was to think of my sin on a scale... Uh, I'd say that speaking a few careless words would probably be amongst the least offensive sins that I commit. You know, I'm quite... I like, oh, it's just a, just a careless word. No biggie. Funny, if one careless word is enough to condemn me on the day of God's judgment, how much more all the other sins that I've committed? How much more all the sins that you have committed? Because all of us have not only spoken careless words, but we've spoken downright evil words, haven't we? We've lied and gossiped and slandered and, and abused, perhaps. And that's to say nothing about the evil in our hearts. The envy, the greed, the lust, the, the, Im- the immorality, the impurity, the, the resentment, the bitterness, the pride. If we've done all those things, as well as speaking a few careless words, how can we possibly escape God's judgment? We can't escape God's judgment, can we? We can't escape. We need to be saved from God's judgment. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus, who never spoke a careless word. Jesus, who never had any evil in his heart. Jesus, in his heart. Jesus, who never did an evil deed. Uh, Jesus who didn't put a foot wrong, uh, who never said a word wrong, and yet in his great mercy he was willing to die for people like us on the cross. Dying, uh, bearing the judgment that people like you and I deserve for every evil desire we've had, every evil deed we've done, every evil word that we've spoken, every careless word that we've spoken. That's the great news, the amazing grace. We sung about it earlier, the amazing grace of Christianity. That if you trust in Jesus, you won't be condemned despite the fact that you deserve that. You won't be condemned for your careless words or for anything else that you've done because the Lord Jesus was condemned in your place on the cross. Now, of course, I could finish the sermon there. Praise God. 
no fear of condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually, as people who do trust in uh, Jesus, we're called to be like Jesus. By the way, we're called to respond to his great, great act of mercy of dying on the cross by, well, frankly, by taking a bit more care with our words. And I think we've got to hear this, but because uh, some of us were brought up to think that words don't really matter. You know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But words don't matter. You know, suck it up, get a thicker skin. If you've got a problem with what I've said, it's with you, not with me. But it's out of the evil, it's out of the overflow of your heart that the mouth speaks, you see. Don't blame it on the other person. Names will never hurt me. We grow up and we realise that's rubbish. Words do hurt. They wound people deeply. Which is why the Bible says that as Christians we should take great care with our words. James chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 says, With uh, the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, James says, this should not be. It should not be that in one breath we would be here in church praising our God with our tongues and in the next breath we're tearing apart a brother or sister in Christ. That should not be. Judging a brother or sister or mocking them or gossiping about them. Whether we are people who take more care with our words. To take care that as much as possible we lose, uh, use our words to, to intentionally build up a brother or sister in Christ. Not to tear them down. Uh, of course we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle to take care with our words. We're far too loose with our words. So, so what's the solution? Well, Jesus says it is out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouths speak. So what we need is a heart transplant. We need a heart, we need a new heart, a cleansed heart. But in Ezekiel 36, that's what God promises to give his people. Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 26, uh, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. So God promises that by the power of his spirit, he'll give his people, he'll give us a new heart. But his spirit, uh, well, you know, if, uh, if Satan and any evil spirit has been cast out, uh, Jesus and his spirit will come and take up residence in us. And as the power of God's spirit is in us and cleanses us from our sins, over time our words will be cleansed. New words will overflow from our hearts. Take Peter, for example. I think if anyone, the Apostle Peter, if anyone was going to be condemned on the day of God's judgment for speaking some careless words, it would be Peter. So you read the Gospel, Peter like, is, like, is born with his foot in his mouth. He doesn't go well when Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer and die as God's king. Peter has the audacity to take him aside and rebuke him. Careless words, right here in the upper room. Uh, Jesus says, I've got, I've got to wash you, I've got to wash your feet. And, and initially Peter refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. Uh, on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is gloriously transformed. And Peter says, you know, I reckon we should put up three tents up here. Gets it wrong again, careless words. In the courtyard when Jesus is being tried, Peter denies three times that he even knows Jesus. 
Peter spoke a whole lot of careless words. But then God gave him a new heart. See, God filled Peter with the power of his spirit. And I'm not saying that from that point on he never spoke a careless word, right? I'm sure he did. But there was a dramatic change, wasn't there? Now, that change is best seen when, when Peter uh, confronted these very same Jewish leaders. Right? Peter was there on this day in Matthew 12, uh, listening to the Pharisees' big lie about Jesus. Uh, and and uh, filled with the Spirit, uh, Peter confronted these very same Jewish leaders. These leaders who are promoting this big lie about Jesus, but filled with God's Spirit, Peter confronts them with the big truth about Jesus. Flick over to, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Peter's before the Jewish leaders. He's just uh, healed someone. Uh, and, and chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, Acts 4, 10 to 12, uh, Peter says this to those leaders. Know this, he says, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, because you'd bought into the big lie, right? You crucified, uh, but whom God raised from the dead, proving that it was a big lie, uh, that this man stands before you. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And here's the truth. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Like like millions of people in our world today, in your workplace, in your school, in your university class, these Jewish leaders had embraced the big lie about Jesus, that he's not really God's king, that the world would be a better place if we just got rid of Jesus. Isn't that what lots of people think? Or at least we tone down this idea that the truth is found in Jesus and just observe a few of his moral teachings. These people, these leaders Peter's speaking about, are speaking to it, embrace that big lie. But Peter, full of God's spirit, the the spirit of truth, declares the truth that Jesus is God's king. Declares that the only way these Jewish leaders or you or me or anyone else can be saved from God's judgment is by trusting in Jesus' death as God's king. So I've been praying this week, I'm going to pray in a second, that we as a church filled with God's Spirit. What does a Spirit-filled church look like? A particular style of worship, a particular type of song, a particular amount of songs? What does a Spirit-filled church look like? It looks like a church where people take care with their words. That's a Spirit-filled believer. Where people are showing self-control where they're intentionally speaking the truth in love to one another, where they're seeking to build one another up with their words, that's a spirit-filled believer and a spirit-filled church, where people have new hearts, cleansed hearts, and speaking cleansed words. And in particular, they're giving themselves to proclaiming the big truth about the Lord Jesus, that he is God's king, who gave their life for their sins, that they too might have a cleansed heart and live a cleansed life for his glory. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do... Thank you for this, your word. We thank you that Matthew's gospel is so clear that Jesus really is God's king. We pray that despite uh, the fact that uh, from the very beginning people like the Pharisees, and and we see it today, people are are trying to perpetuate this big lie about Jesus. Uh, We thank you that the big truth about Jesus continues to bear fruit in our own lives and throughout the world. 
Uh, we do pray, Father, that our hearts, uh, as they've been born again by this truth and the power of your Spirit, as your Spirit lives in us, uh, that we, uh, as individuals, as a church, that we would take great care with our words. And not because we fear being condemned by you, but because we want to be like our Lord Jesus, who always took care with his words. Help us to put to death uh, ungodly habits when it comes to our speech. Help us to speak words that build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in particular, Father, help us uh, to give ourselves to the great task of proclaiming the the truth of the gospel by the power of your spirit of truth, uh, that many might see the truth that our Lord Jesus is indeed the King in your kingdom. Uh, We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.